Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Well, good morning. It's an honor to be here. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, to Galatians uh, chapter 4. And as you do that, I'd like to say a few things um, regarding our church family. Um, We have a table set out in the lobby uh, today, and I want to encourage you this morning, if you are called to church ministry in North America and are looking for a ministry residency where you can get uh, practical experience, earn credit in the EQUIP program, um, we would love to talk to you. We have several ministry resident slots open, and uh, I know many of you are here, would love that experience in a local church, and uh, you can just look at our church family right here and how wonderful they are. You would be a blessing uh, to serve with us. Number two, if you are called to international missions, uh, we have a very special guest with us this morning, Alicia Jones, who we sent out of our church um, almost a decade ago to serve in Hungary and Romania. And right now, we are praying with her that God would send um, Christians to teach English in the local schools and to help plant and raise up churches in the areas in which she serves. So after chapel, if, you, if any of that, if God is stirring your heart to find out more about those things, stop by the table in the lobby and talk to either Matt Searson or Alicia, and you can also enter into a, um, a, a raffle to, to win a goatskin leather Bible, if that's not enough. So I encourage you to, to stop by there and do that. Now, Galatians chapter 4. This morning I will read chapter 3, verses 27, and all the way through 4-7 for context, but I'm going to focus my attention in the sermon on chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And we have in this section what many theologians have called the theological center, the very heart of the letter to the church in Galatia. So as you pick up in chapter 3, what Paul has done thus far, among other things, is expounded on the doctrine of justification by faith, has explained the purpose of the law, and he closes chapter 3 with verses 27 and 29 by saying this. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now listen to verse 29 because this leads into our passage today. And if you belong to Christ, if, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to to the promise. So what are the implications of being an heir and how does one become an heir? We will see it is through adoption, through adoption. And this is what Paul lays out in Galatians 4, 1 through 7. I'm going to read that text now and then we will walk through it. Now I say, this is verse 1, that as long as the heir is a child, as long as he's a child, He differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until, until the time set by his father. In the same way, we, 
speaking of Christians, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. The time came to completion. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And listen to this last part. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. My goodness. This is the word of the Lord. The photograph you see on the screen has very deep meaning to me. Laura and I adopted our first child, Solomon. At that point in the picture, his name was Salamu. And if you've ever been in the process of adoption, you know that it it takes time. There's paperwork, there's costs associated, there, there's highs and lows, there's hopes, there's, there's disappointments. And what you see here in this picture was after a year of waiting, after we had seen his face in a picture and found out about his story and agreed to adopt him as our son, here we are finally in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, the capital city. We had traveled through the city, we had traveled into the hills to the children's home where he was to finally receive this young boy, this baby, into our care. And I'll never forget it. We arrive at the, the home where the children were, were, were being kept, and our caseworker walks inside the complex into the fence to retrieve Solomon from his crib on the second floor and we could hear the house mothers lovingly telling him goodbye and hugging him and kissing him and after a few minutes we're standing there in the street you can imagine the anticipation it's just quiet we're just waiting and and the gates swing open and he comes out and he hands us our son what happened next I was not prepared for as we climb into the van and shut the door and begin to head down the hill away from the home, Solomon began to scream and cry. Looking frantically at Laura, looking frantically at me, looking at the driver. And, and what I understood in that moment is, is this child does not know who I am. He does not know who Laura is. We're taking him from everything he has ever known, what he has perceived to be his home, He doesn't know where we're going. He doesn't know who we are. But after a few minutes, this is when I took this picture. After a few minutes, he finally calmed down, reached his chubby little arms around Laura's neck, and rested his head on her shoulder and settled in to what he would soon know as his mother. I think about that moment often. And as as moving as it was to watch Solomon have that little moment of transition and wrap his arms around Laura's neck, what mattered most was that Laura 
had Solomon in her arms the entire time. And here's why this is important, brothers and sisters. In time, Solomon would have to learn what it meant to have the status of a son, the identity that he had just received. In time, he would have to learn what it meant to have the security of a forever family, the inheritance that comes with it. And I think it's not much different than many Christians today, perhaps even some of you in this room. The Puritan Thomas Manton once said, it takes years, years may transpire before a believer who is adopted by God has a deep sense or feels the power of that adoption. And I believe that gets to the very heart of what Paul is talking about here in our passage. And so here's kind of the main idea of the sermon. It's very simple. In Christ, brothers and sisters, in Christ, you have an identity and an inheritance. I mean, I could talk about those two things all day. This is the the foundation of who you are as a believer. These concepts are simple, but they have profound implications. And this is one of the reasons I believe that the concept of adoption, the theological concept of adoption, is one of the most powerful and multifaceted theological metaphors in the New Testament. And I'm not alone. J.I. Packer, one of the most revered theologians of our lifetime, when asked the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian, Dr. Packer? Do you know what he said? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian A Christian is one who has God as father. And then he says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child. Here's my first point from Galatians 4, verses 1 through 5. Christian, you have been given an identity. Now, you'll notice that I begin the point with the qualifier Christian intentionally. You know, we, we often hear people say things like, all people are children of God, and that is certainly, or, that's certainly true that we're all created in the image of God, but the, the language Paul uses right here in verse 5 implies a unique and distinct status of sonship, a relationship that is only afforded to believers, Christians, Right? As you can see, in verse 1, there are two identities in this text. There is a son and there is a slave. A slave to what? According to the New Testament and specifically in the the Pauline writings, we are born as slaves to sin. You can see that in Galatians 3, verses 19 and following. Post-fall, what happens post-fall in Genesis 3 is that our natural status and identity before the Father is we are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. In other words, if you read the sweep of Scripture, it reminds us that in the fall, what our first parents did was orphaned the entire human race spiritually and banished us from our Edenic home. I want you to let that set in for a second. God's law testifies to this, not only to our slavery to sin, because it reveals our nature. And it shows us that what God did, and this is grace, he put us under a guardian or trustee, a tutor, the law to help us recognize our status and our need to be redeemed. The conceptual background for this passage is helpful here. 
Often the head of a family would place a son under guardians or trustees to direct and discipline them into maturity before they became the heir of an estate. Functionally, when the child was younger, he was no different than a slave. That's what Paul says. In the same way, under Adam, all are in slavery to the elements of this world and under the law. Now there's a lot of discussion about what the elements of the world Means If you'd like to email me and ask me what I think about that, just send me an email at um, dracon at sebts.edu and I'd be glad to respond to you. But here, here's the thing. The good news of the gospel is that God doesn't leave us there, does he? He doesn't leave us as orphans. Verse 2 says, there is a time set by the Father. In verse 4 it says, Paul proclaims that when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. So do you hear that? God sent Jesus. Jesus doesn't just happen to appear. Jesus is born of a woman. That's one of us, fully human. Jesus is under the law in a state of obligation to the law like you and I. And this is the good news of adoption. Where Adam failed, where Israel as God's son failed, where you and I failed to live up to the Father's expectations, Christ succeeds. Christ is the perfectly obedient son that Adam and you and I cannot be. And Jesus completely fulfills the law's demands, which we cannot do. And after completely and utterly upholding God's law, Christ offers himself as a sacrifice, a payment to release us from the bondage of sin and from the condemnation that we all deserve from a holy God. And three days later, when Jesus victoriously emerges from the grave, what he does is he swings the gates of the Father's house wide open and says, the price has been paid, come and sit at the Father's table. So when you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, your status changes from slave to son. Your identity changes from being that of an orphan to a beloved member of the household of God. That is all the sovereign work of God. Amen? That's all God's work, our Father. It's not unlike when Laura and I adopted Solomon. We did so on purpose. An adopted child is not the natural offspring of his adopted parents, but his or her presence in the household is not an accident. I'll never forget standing in that hot, arid, just the courtroom in Ethiopia. We're standing before the judge and holding this baby. The judge asked us, do you intend to be his father? Yes. Do you intend to be his mother? Yes. Do you commit to, to raising him as part of your family? Yes. She so slammed the gavel and said, I declare to you now that Solomon is now your son. Brothers and sisters, that's what the word adopt means in verse 5, to place as son. This is precisely what happens when you are justified by God. What you do not have by natural birth, you are supernaturally the recipient through your adoption in Christ Jesus. And it gets even better because God didn't just send Jesus to make slaves into sons. He also sent his spirit so that we could experience that sonship. And this is my second point. I've only got two. Christian, 
In Jesus Christ, you receive an eternal inheritance. Verses 4 through 7. Notice in verse 6. Because you are sons, that's because you have received the identity you have been given. The implication is that God now sends his spirit, the spirit of his son, into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. If you're a father of a young child, you know the experience of being awakened from your sleep or pulled away from whatever you're attending to by the sound of your child crying, Daddy. It could be a nightmare. It could be a scraped knee. It could be the sounds of the pipes in the wall in the middle of the night. I mean, in in the dark for a child, that's the stuff of horror films, right? Daddy. You don't have to be a father to understand that. Why, why does a child cry out for their father? Why does a child cry out to their, their, their parents when they're scared or when they're hurt? They want the security of their parents' arms. They want to know. They want the assurance that everything's going to be okay. And that word Abba there is an Aramaic expression that was derived from the first syllables of an infant towards the father. It's it's a term of intimacy and endearment. It's a term of of crying out. And in verse 6, Paul is telling us, all of us, that we have that type of relationship with the sovereign, omnipotent God of the universe. And the Spirit testifies to this. That's how we know, right? In the ancient courtroom, when adoption took place, the law required a third party to witness the transaction. Who's the, who's the third party in the text? It's the Spirit. Paul's using this legal procedure theologically. Verse 6, God has sent his Spirit to testify to our hearts. That is, to witness to, to confirm, to give us a deep persuasion that our Heavenly Father is always accessible to his children, never too preoccupied to listen to what they have to say, never annoyed or angered by their pleas. I love how Tim Keller said this one time. He said, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. You have that kind of access. After all, who among you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone or if he asked for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I mean, just think about what this text is saying. You, you ask for grace and you get it. And with grace comes a new identity. And with a new identity, you also receive an inheritance. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, you're an heir through God. My goodness, brothers and sisters, is this... This is the good news of the gospel. Don't ever let this become commonplace. If this doesn't stir the affections of your heart, oh, may God's spirit just move you in this moment. In the ancient world, the firstborn son always received the inheritance and was tasked to distribute that inheritance to his siblings accordingly. So what's Paul saying here? If you go look at what Paul says in Colossians, he says that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. He is establishing him as the primary heir. Now listen to Romans 8. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, so what does our older brother do with the riches of his inheritance? Jesus not only takes what you deserve... Death, 
because of your sin, he turns and gives you what you could not earn, adoption into the family of God and all the rights and privileges that come with it. Listen to the next part of Romans 8. Those who he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who justified, he also glorified. That's all the work of God. That's all grace. That's your inheritance. That is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, you may be thinking, why in the world are you standing up here and preaching the gospel to a bunch of seminarians? We know this, Matt. I mean, I remember sitting in these seats as a seminarian and you think like if you're asked to preach in chapel what are you going to do and I remember thinking you would think things like well I'll maybe I'll solve the problem of evil or maybe I'll I'll destroy the philosophical foundations of expressive individualism or perhaps I'll expose the destruction of John Dewey's educational philosophy and the lack of catechism in the church for the education of our next generation I don't know what, what, what should I do The more and more I live this Christian life, the more and more I do ministry, the more and more I believe what J.I. Packer said. What is a Christian? How do you know what someone, someone thinks about being a Christian? They have to answer the question, how much do you make of the thought of being God's child? You don't move past this. You go deeper in and let it just ruminate in your heart stir your affections so perhaps you're here this morning and you struggle with believing that you have this status or identity and you may not even know it but I'll tell you when you're in ministry you're doing missions work you're trying to lead people you, you may fluctuate between basing your identity on your ministry performance or on people's perception of you You'll swing back and forth between self-righteousness and self-deprecation. It's not good. I can tell you what God thinks of you because it's right here in the text. His opinion of you was settled on the cross. The only opinion that matters in the universe was settled on the cross. If you ever doubt your identity or the, 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 if you question the love of God, look at the cross and the resurrection. You have been given a new identity in Jesus Christ and it will never be taken away. Now you may be struggling with believing that you have this security of this inheritance. In other words, in ministry context, what that looks like is, will God provide Maybe the needs of my family or the needs of the ministry. Will, will, will God work in this impossible situation? You're going to have those moments. Our Heavenly Father owns a cattle, the cattle on a thousand hills. <laughs> Our Heavenly Father is at the helm of the universe and you have nothing to worry about. Remember the birds of the sky? They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Let me close with this. When you look at this passage, 
you are reminded that God has declared whose you are, you're his. Who you are as a child of God and what you've been given, an eternal inheritance. Let us, therefore, in light of these glorious theological truths, let us live like God has already declared us to be. You know, when I look out at the landscape of the American church, I think you would agree with me. I, I, I would conclude that there is one thing the world needs to see in the church right now. And it's pastors, leaders, missionaries who live and exemplify the expectations of the family of God. The pursuit of righteousness. And I don't say that self-righteously because I know what's in my own heart. I remember when I would used to leave the house in high school, I'd hear my dad yell from the other room, hey, Matt, don't forget what family you represent out in that world. Ephesians 5.1, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now listen, I know this is not always easy. You, you, there, there, ministry is hard, life is hard, and, and you will struggle and you will fail. But if the doctrine of adoption teaches you anything, it teaches you that within the sound of your voice, Abba, Father, you have a father who is never too preoccupied to come to your aid. At your disposal, you have all the riches of his grace. You have the goodness of his discipline, and you have the power of his spirit. That is all you need to bear the family resemblance. So in the power of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, let's be about our Father's work. Let's live as children of the King as he has called us to be. Because in Christ, you have already been given an identity and an inheritance. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that the good news of the gospel will stir within our hearts our affections, remind us of what we have been given by grace. Father, we know that later in the book of Galatians, we are exhorted not to get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. So, Father, as we exemplify the expectations of your family out in the world, I pray that you would give us hearts of repentance when needed, the power of your spirit to be bold. In the moments of struggle, that we would remember that it's not the strength of our grip around you that sustains us, but the strength of your arms that have already been wrapped around us. So, Father, may we exemplify what it looks like to be a child of God in love and joy and peace and patience.
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Our rock, our redeemer, and our beloved Father. It's in Christ's name alone that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.